0: Welcome to Leadership Revealed, where John Paul shares his no-nonsense approach to all things leadership and scaling businesses. John interviews some of the most successful people in their industries to see what it takes to become a great leader. Be prepared for the truth about leadership and business. Please welcome your host, serial
1: entrepreneur and top-selling author, John Paul. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Leadership Revealed. Whether you're watching this on YouTube or you're listening on the podcast, I promise you this is going to be an absolute cracker. Now, this isn't a normal podcast or YouTube video where you're just listening to me. I'm interviewing no other than Ben Ryan, former Fiji's Rugby Sevens coach. Now, if you're a huge rugby fan like me, you'll completely understand and appreciate what a legend Ben actually is, especially in the, in the rugby game. Um, if you're not, you're about to find out. And what Ben did was absolutely remarkable. He took Fiji languishing down at the bottom of the world rugby tables in sevens, and he took them to number one. And that culminated in winning the gold medal at the Rio Olympics. Now, in this video or podcast, Ben and I talk for a good 40 minutes, and we talk about all things leadership, leadership, how about having a common purpose and a common vision, united the guys at the Fiji uh, Sevens team. Um, but also he really is a massive fan of something called simple leadership. And as the name suggests, it's all about being simple as leadership. It's about having a simple, simple, common goal, not complicating things, not coming up with all these fancy models and tables and all that sort of stuff, but just about good communication, understanding what makes people tick what people, what motivates people but that common goal is absolutely fantastic. And as much as he was working out his team, his team were working out Ben. Ben's also a massive, massive fan of just listening, just literally just watching what goes on, not going in there too soon and trying to rock the board and upset the apple cart. But what Ben did is he just went into the Fiji camp and he just listened and he just watched and he understood what makes people tick and what motivated them. So when it came to him putting his own stamp on the game, he got massive buy-in from the team under his simple leadership banner. So listen, watch, and enjoy. This is Ben Ryan and his quest to make Fiji gold medalists at the Rio Olympics. Enjoy. Ben, thanks for joining me. How are you?
0: I'm good, thanks, John Paul. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for asking me on. Um, all good here in West London. Sun's sort of shining. Um and it feels like life is slowly going back to normal you know work seems to have um come back online a bit more getting to see people a bit more which is what 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 i do so yeah, yeah all good
1: fantastic fantastic well you've got an absolute amazing story so i know our viewers watchers and listeners and are going to be just enthralled with your story um quick little plug if you don't mind seven's heaven absolutely fantastic book if you haven't read it or got it guys strongly recommend um so you started off as a teacher before you got into coaching mm. Mm. that's quite a natural progression but how did you have you always been into rugby how did you go yes. from where you were to olympic coach
0: yeah it's a good question because i think we all kind of have a number of different chapters in our careers right you know over over time and for me First, it was as an athlete and a, and a professional rugby player, and then that um, got. I got. I got. So I, I did all right. I was an all right player. I wasn't like. I think I probably peaked at about under nines. I was very good at under nines, like that. So I that was decent then. Um, and I did. I did play professionally, but I had a lot of injuries. Kind of. I was injury free for a whole for most of my career, and then I got them all, at, all all in one season, all in sort of a six seven month period where prolapse disc. PCL broken leg um, and uh, and a shoulder operation as well. So I think I ended up having about seven operations. Um, I don't know, I think just just bad luck really. And then I went into, yeah, I went into teaching. So I was a supply teacher in, um, because I thought I was going to carry on playing. Um, And I suddenly like had no job, nowhere to live. I went back home, lived with my mum and dad. And um, started supply teaching in in a London, really. So you know, you wait by your phone at seven in the morning till someone rings and says, "Right, there's this is school in Brent," and off you go. And then you, you're a supply teacher where well, everyone knows you're a supply teacher, and they'll try every trick in the book. And um, it, it was good fun. Uh, it was good fun. I learned quite a lot on how to cr- crowd control from an early from my early teaching days. Um, and we had some, and then one of those schools asked if I'd like to stay for a couple of terms. So um, at the time I had nothing else. I was kind of hoping what I was going to recover injury what, and, and come back and play. But I really enjoyed teaching. Um, I enjoyed coaching. My first coaching job was actually in the school, was just coaching football um, and then athletics. Uh, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. And then um, tried to come back and play and then started coaching rugby. And then I went to um, the third tier. I went to Newbury rugby club who at the time were kind of moving up. They'd had the, the, they were the global headquarters of Vodafone and Vodafone were chucking money at all the sports clubs really in the town. And so I played for them and in my first game I got injured um, again and they were paying me and they thought, well, we've got to try and make this money stretch. So they, they farmed me out to a school to go and do some teaching. And then that school said, why don't, why don't you stay um, and have a full-time job? And I thought probably my, my career was was only going to fizzle out. I was going to carry on playing maybe semi-pro, pro for a few years. And that wasn't really, I wasn't too excited about that. But teaching got me excited. So I started teaching. So I moved from, you know, supply teaching in Brent behind the Ikea and Brent cross to Southall, the big comprehensive to a big boarding school where I taught Richard Branson's kids and um, Game of Thrones Uh um actress I can't remember her name is now Amelia yeah. Clark um exactly. yeah. Yeah, I've read, I've heard yeah. That, yeah um yeah she's a decent netball player actually um <laughs> and then I started my coaching and I, I literally worked my way up from coaching you know football in a comprehensive in London to a private school to then university I was Oxford University under 21s coach Oxfordshire coach southwest schools coach then I, I worked with England under 18s and then I worked at Newbury Rugby Club and then took went full-time with them Took that got them promoted. And the story carries on really well. I just kept moving up and just doing my, doing my badges and qualifications. I had a, a sports science degree from Loughborough and I had a master's mm-hmm. from Cambridge. So I had that education behind me, that knowledge across the kind of quite a range, I guess. So um, that really helped me. And then I was the first group of coaches on level, the level four, there are a few with people like Sean Edwards um and that's when kind of the radar came up for the rugby union and that's when they they you know, asked me to um, go and work for them and then I worked for England for seven years and coached the skills coach of the first team scrum halves. so i travel around the country coaching scrum halves and then I'd coach the England sevens team and um and that was in itself was a bit of a up and down period for England mm. sevens because they had literally gone from being able to bring in all the best players in the country, the young best players, to getting its kind of legs cut off really. You couldn't we couldn't, we couldn't bring any of those in and had to had to look at trying to turn the program into a full-time program where you had to bring specialist sevens players and contract them. And that was our only option other than shutting the program down. Mm-hmm. So I set up a full-time first time anyone was fully, fully professional players joining England rugby. And then I also set up a a training base at the Lensbury club, which is still used now by, by England sevens and the fifteens team. And kind of any touring team will come and use it. Uh, And then, yeah, uh, my last year I fell out of love really with, with rugby and not so much the sport just, I I, I don't know if you've ever had this, but like up managing, like I always thought kind of work moving up the system as a teacher, you know, as a, a junior teacher and head of department and, different directors all those different roles but there's always someone higher that kind of just I always thought kind of managed managed me and so when I went to the RFU I had you know the my guys in top of me I thought they, man, they managed me but um, I needed to up manage them better because they weren't very proactive it was causing problems politically it was all over the shop back, back then and um, I took my eye off the ball I was spending way too much time in meetings and and fighting upper management rather than actually coaching and so that kind of just took my sheen off everything I did I didn't really want to be there I wasn't enjoying it I felt I was under the the magnifying glass for everything and my last game was the world cup in russia and we'd just got the team into the world cup final first time in 20 years and should be really excited and i just wanted to get out of get out of the tournament and go home and i, I wasn't i wasn't finding any joy yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, the turning point in my career, really, when I left. And and then a mate said to me on Twitter, "Have you seen that Fiji are looking for a new head coach?" And that began the next chapter.
1: So yeah, I, I saw you on a, an, another podcast, and you, you sort of said you, you got through the semis, and it just you were meant to be elated. You were in the final, and you just yeah, it was a bit like, yeah, I'm not too yeah. not too fussed. Yeah. Um, so when, when you parted ways with the RFU, what was the sort of time frame that you were you were out of work? Was it a while? Was it straight away the Fiji job came up?
0: Yeah, it was it was almost um, immediate. So I kind of, you know, I've said this before, you know, you, you, it comes out in the press that you've you've stepped down, but yeah. effectively you've got pushed out. And I was then going to go English Institute Sport contacted me and offered me a job with them. Was going to go and do that, and it was more strategy and more behind the scenes, really. And then, within a couple of days, I suppose, and maybe not even um, that I'd left England, someone mate said to me, You know, have a look at (laughs) Fiji. And I thought, Okay, you know, when I'd coached, I played against Fiji and against like Waisali Serevi, who's you know, a magician, probably the best sevens player ever to play, and I played against those, those players. and I'd coached a couple of the Fijian boys that ended up playing for England that were in the British Army. But um I just saw how consist consistently inconsistent they were, you know. On their day, they would just tear everyone apart. And then on other days, they'd just collapse, you know, they'd give up. I've sit I've played against them where at half time, you know, they didn't bother having a huddle they'd just sit down wherever they finished the game at half time. Yeah. And then and then they stand up and they got, you know, that you know you you know you're on a- onto a good thing as as the opposition then and you know with England I think we put 40 points on them the last time I played against Fiji that just before I left England we had beaten them by 40 points and it's like that should never happen that you know it's the national sport in Fiji so it it was really a curious opportunity that I thought you know what's the harm in sending a CV across to them Mm -hmm. and then they came back and said look we know who you are you've missed the deadline but let's have an interview on on Skype and um and that, and that that interview was all over the shop, you know, and was two hours later than it should have been, and it was two in the morning back in London. Ended up being four o'clock, and uh, if you work with Fijians, you know, Fiji time is, uh, <laughs> is 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 something that they'll know about. You know, no hurry, no worry, and um, eventually they did they did call me, and and that conversation led to me a week later paying for my own flights to fly to Fiji, and starting um three years living and and working for the Fijian rugby union
1: so when you got there i mean obviously it's it's plus the third world country mm. there was a bit of a political issues going on wasn't the head of the military also the head of the Fijian rugby so when you got yeah. there you must have thought what the hell have i signed up for here because it, it it's been polar opposite to what you're being used to in the rfu well, you say to poll
0: opposites, but yeah, maybe a military dictator is not too far from, far far off my my old bosses <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I mean like when I made the decision I, I, like it, after that after that I won't give you the long story, but after um I did the the interview on Skype, um the following morning, I found out that the CEO that had interviewed me got sacked. so I, so I thought, okay, well, that's going nowhere then and this this is going to be for someone else but then a couple of weeks later I get a phone call when I'm, I'm having we're out in Richmond somewhere having having dinner and, um, and it is it's the, the new Fijian CEO and he, he basically gave me 20 minutes to make my mind up and if I'd had like a full day and I'd had all the facts then I probably would have said no but I knew I needed to I needed to just have a restart in my career. I needed to do something different and it was a long way to go and do something different. But I just said yes and I didn't have all that information. So I didn't know how much I was getting paid, how long my contract was for, what it'd be like to live in Fiji, who my boss was, um, how many players were left and how much budget they had. And slowly I was finding out the information for that, which wasn't particularly good at the time, you know, that I wasn't going to get paid anything because I didn't have any money and they'd gone bankrupt. And, um, all the good players had gone overseas, um, that my boss was, was the military dictator. Um, and, and, uh, so I had to get pretty good at art managing and, um, and yeah, they were at a real low point as a, as a union, but what they did have was it was a national sport. Mm-hmm. So yeah, these players hadn't trained professionally. They were really inconsistent there was a whole new wave of them that we'd have to bring into the team because the old team had all gone overseas, but they were very talented and you just kind of, it just got me excited again. And I was just thinking, right, okay, well, look, this is, this is day one. They're unfit. They don't know how to, you know, to look after themselves professionally. They had no game plan. We had no training base. We had nine select eight selectors that were picking the team. Um, so there's lots to have to change. And we didn't have any money. But it's but they were so happy when I was when we were training. They were so grateful. You saw flashes of stuff that I'd never seen in rugby players before, and you're thinking, okay, this is a good start point. You might we might have nothing, but we've got the, the raw quality, which was the players, and they were ready and they wanted to learn and they wanted to get better.
1: So what's interesting with sport and is that there's a lot of sport there's a lot of parallels between sport and business and culture is is definitely one of them. I'm really interested to see how. Because we, we've been acquiring estate agents and other businesses. And one of the things that we try and do straight away is is we sit down and we talk to the, the new employees. I mean, well, they're not huge businesses, half a dozen employees, maybe maybe 10 at the most. Hmm. One of the things we do is we try and see what the culture is like. Because inevitably, what you've been sold is, is the culture when you buy the business or when you take the job is completely different to what it actually is. So how did you sort of changed the culture how did you find out what the culture was did you just sit back and listen or did you go and put the Ben stamp on things from day one
0: yeah I bet you get that all the time in business and I you know I work across in corporate as well with Mm. HSBC and and different other different companies and the first thing I do whenever I go in anyone it where where, wherever I I am if it's in a I don't know a football club or it's a, a small business you've got to you've got to taking information right so however you manage to do that and it, it, it you know I'm going to find out as much as I can for about the people that are involved around me I'm going to listen I'm going to go into where they they're culturally are from so it's a bit different if I'm in a, a football club in London you know I'll, I'll, I'll have an understanding a bit more of where their culture is perhaps partic- the club anyway but in Fiji I'd never been to Fiji I didn't I hadn't gone to school there and eaten Fijian food so I, I had to go and find out more about the culture so I I did a lot of listening listening both to not to understand um, but to get even deeper than that to try to really get a feel for the culture you know and I think I'd got pretty average at listening I think with the RFU it'd become like a bit transactional um, and just to answer questions and not really get to understand someone and for them to you know, good listeners really should make you feel like you, you know, they really care about you. And and the best way of doing that is getting to know someone, finding out more about them and and where they're from and what their purpose is. And I think that's at the start of every culture. You find out what the culture is for that put for the, the purpose is for that culture. And then you start to put things into place. Um, so that's that's what I did to start with. And when I felt I had enough information to make a, a decision, then I started to implement some guardrails. I call them guardrails. So it's effectively like if you imagine like this box um, that we're, there's a square, the square. The outside of the box is the guardrails. That's that's what we've decided are our you know our discipline, our timings, are, you know all those sort of things inside that. Inside of that is your culture and and your culture then is all about making sure that people feel safe, psychologically safe to be their best version, that they've got a common purpose. They've got that us story. They Mm -hmm. understand what they're trying to deliver. Um, You can definitely get success without that if if you go in a company or a club and they haven't got an us uh, and a purpose. Short term, you can do all right, but long term, it will drag you down. And so I needed to find that as well, and, and all the boys came from very poor upbringings. Um, you know, the richest kid was Oscar, uh, our captain, Oscar out. and um, you know he took it in turns to go to school because his mom and mom and dad could only afford the bus fare for like two out of the three um, kids. So they all had that common purpose that it changed their lives playing professional rugby. You know, it would make a difference to them and their families, mm. and it and they also came from a third world country where. They always felt they weren't quite good enough, yeah. and they had an opportunity through rugby sevens and the Olympics to go and prove people wrong, and that was quite a strong early kind of purpose that we started to see. And on top of that, we know, I've got it written down: it's Moani tattoo that I've got. Veilamani, and Veilamani is um a fr- is a Fijian phrase that that means work together, uh, love each other, but work together, and that's the kind of village feel and culturally in Fiji, everyone in the village has to work, have to look mm. after each other, work for each other. And that's how we saw the team. So if any, anyone's not doing what they should do, then rather than make it personal and start saying, you know, John, Paul, like, why have you done, not done this? Mm. We'll we talk about failure and said, are you sticking to what our cultural, principles are and you know our values fail and money and then we we get conversations from that and it takes away it being personal and it directs towards that alignment that we all want
1: Mm. I think you 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 talk about a story about one of the guys that had a drink the night before and he turned up for practicing and he was spewing up and you didn't you're going to handle it yourself and didn't the captain say no we've got this we'll handle it that's the cultural thing you're talking about
0: yeah I mean we talked about this beforehand, like simple leadership right you know you want to flatten the hierarchy so that ultimately that everyone feels that they've got a say and they they've got some some autonomy and um and if if you if you guide people through that po- process then that situation you talked about really talented player semi kunatani went from our program went from you know he's in a tiny little village in the in the mountains in the um you know had a really hard upbringing his his mum died when he was young, and got brought up by the by the village, really. And that village, really poor village. Um, and he, he came, ended up being a superstar. But just as he was starting, and he went to Toulouse, and then he went to Harlequins. And he's back in France. Just as he was starting that uh, ascent, people started wanting to grab hold of his tails, and and so an agent, you know, got him, took him out, had a few beers with him, trying to get him to sign with him. And uh, it, not not allowed to you know drink in camp, and he appears late for training, and it, we had open training sessions, so the public are all there; they can see what's happening. Coach is there. Player turns up, obviously probably still drunk, thinking of booze. Um, it's then what to do, and and that's when the players wanted to intercede and go, you know, he's gone against what our values are, and yeah, they they literally did a fitness session with him, flogged him in a in a way that didn't bully him it just led him to understand how he'd let everyone down he still had the consequence of what we'd all agreed was that if you break any of the protocols you know you get dropped for the next tournament so he got dropped for hong kong sevens which was you know a massive tournament for us and we needed him because he was our star player and it was my first year of hong kong sevens but that was the rule and uh, he got dropped from that and he learned a lot then. And then for the rest of the season, he was just on fire. He was our, you know, our best player. He was probably the best player in the Olympic final two years later. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes, you know, you, you need to create cultures where you want people to feel valued and, uh, and feel like they can really be safe talking to their bosses and not get, not get, um you know, a black mark against their name. But at the same time, you can't protect them from the consequences of their actions. If we've all agreed, right, this is what, what we need to do. And someone goes out and drinks or, you know, does something else that breaks our rules. He's, mm. They've got to face the consequences and and semi did that, but also shows you that by doing that, you're actually helping him in the long term. And, you know, he ended up getting a very big contract in Toulouse that totally changed his family's life. And, uh, and so I'm not sure if I had gone, do you know what semi like? I know you've had a few beers, just go and get a few hours sleep and I'll see you at training tomorrow. I don't know if we'd ever got the best out of him. And it's easy for coaches to do that and leaders to do mm-hmm. that and bosses to do that. Cause you want to be liked, right? You want everyone to like you. And you think, ah, oh, you know, I'll do that. You actually, you're letting them down if you do that, because it's, you know, as you know, it's just going to end up biting you, you know, eventually and him, you're not going to get the best out of them.
1: Totally agreed. One of the things that, that that I see is you can't be friends. You can be friendly, but you can't be friends with you, with your team. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, outside of work, you can have a beer when it's, you know, you're not playing and whatnot, but there needs to be consequences for, for poor actions or, or inaction because there never people aren't going to learn. I mean, in the same
0: way, know. right? Like for you as a boss, like if you're doing stuff that goes against what the guidelines are, you've, you've got to be, they've got to be in a situation when they can pick you up for it as well. So if there's something you said you were going to do and you didn't do it. Then they should feel safe enough to go. Oh, hold on a minute, Ben. You said this was going to happen, or you said we're well, we're not drinking, and then we've just seen you down the bar and a glass of wine. It's like what's going on, yeah. and, and, and you know they they that's the culture that people have got to understand is going to be the difference between a good a good organisation and a great one. Yeah,
1: totally, totally. It's a sort of leader led responsibility and accountability, isn't it? Mm. Um, so the plan, the plan was was real. Um, mm. When you got there, there was a great story about one of the guys who, who was lying down, he thought his legs are been cursed and whatnot. When you saw that and you saw the state of, no, I mean, these guys are huge units, physically they're, they're fit, probably the most explosive like sort of national race on the planet, um, mm. talent in abundance. You saw the talent, but did you think, my goodness, I've got my work cut out here and, and how did you go about turning that into reality? Um, yeah, look, I,
0: obviously I saw the talent. There was, set, there was, you know, I think I, I quickly realized, you know, don't assume anything. So, you know, just because I'm setting a fitness test up, don't assume that they understand why I'm doing that yeah. or why I'm telling them that they can't put 12 teaspoons of sugar in their cups of tea in the morning um, or... 12? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. In the mornings, like you, that would be, that would be the norm, you know, uh, she can, that teaspoon could probably stand up on his own in that cup of tea. Wow.
1: Um,
0: and that's, that's just, that, I mean, I've been in, I've been in a member my first couple of years with England. I remember one of the Samoans had come down and he had got a, a loaf of bread. He'd taken out, hollowed out the loaf of bread. He had put in ice cream in the loaf of bread And then he'd poured Coca-Cola into the ice cream and this whole thing dissolves and and it goes. And it's like, you know, that if you don't know that it's gonna it's doing you damage and it feels good at the time, then you know, you don't don't assume that you, you know, if you don't know, you don't know, right? And and so there were lots of things that those players didn't realize they weren't doing to to get themselves to the to be their best version. And so diet, intensive training, standards. That was kind of the, those three areas that we needed to 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 do well. And but I couldn't come in as this white English guy and just tell them like this is the way to do it. They would have said yes. They would have got on with it. Um, we would have got people disciplined and all the other stuff. But I wouldn't have got them playing the way we wanted to play on the field, which was like you know, risk free. Um, really like you know playing the way we wanted to play if i'd been so strict and very dictatorial wouldn't wouldn't have worked at all and plus culturally you know they would had enough of that with previous centuries where you know the empire had done various things to the islands and um and we did you know we i didn't want to come in as this white guy that that wanted to, to to sound like he knew it all i knew i you know they were very bright rugby players they were very clever really understood what, what it, what it, what needed to, to win on the on, tactically. And so I needed to plug into that and understand to get the best out of them. I needed to uh, adapt as
1: well. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is incredibly impressive about, you know, you being in, in charge in the journey was the time that the guys peaked. So, you know, it's a three year journey, but to peak at where you did in in the final was just perfect planning in, in in terms of when you got to Rio it, was everything absolutely meticulously planned or did you give it a little bit of autonomy to the guys because that was their culture because you can't come in and say you've got to do it by this time because the guys have never had that before it's a bit unusual for them
0: yeah you you de- you agree things that you want to do so you know, take going into Olympic Village I mean the Olympic Village is, is a difficult place right? it, it won't yeah. be this Olympics because it'd be very sanit- sanitised and social distanced and people have to, you know, you, you, I think you've got to be out 48 hours after you finish your competition. But normally it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of carnage really in the village. You know, it's like a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of athletes are tourists, you know, that their Olympics is getting to the Olympics, not getting on podiums. And so you've got this weird split of these athletes that, you know, get knocked out very early and then they've got two weeks holiday in the village where it's 24 seven, um, pretty much anything and um and so we flew in very late we got into the village right the last team last athletes before they lock it down before the opening ceremony um and we had agreed that if we're going to do this well we needed to control what we could control and that was get our diet right and come off any sort of communication outside our group so you know hand in your phones hand in your laptops but understand why we were doing it that we needed to be tight as a group we didn't want anything that was uncontrollable. We didn't want any negative social media stuff or anything that could have got in the way, and we could control that. So once you explain it and they agree, then it makes things a lot easier. You know, if if i just got got right right fellas' phones, taking your phone off you, and I hadn't told them why, then you're not getting buy-in, and you're also getting just people not feeling like there's there's a trust there. Mm. So everything had to get had to get kind of engineered so that we agreed we agreed what we were going to do and they understood they connected mm. why I was asking things for that, to, you know, for them to, for them to do and taking them off carbohydrates or whatever it was. Mm. And then really, then you kind of let that, once you set that up and you create that alignment, mm. then let the team run themselves. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think I would have, I didn't have to do very much at all in those two or three days before we, we had a, our first game in Olympics, you know, I literally, you know, we had, we had breakfast, lunch and dinner together. We didn't train very much by then because we'd got a take, we were tapering. So we weren't doing too much there. Um, and we were just kind of just waiting for the competition really. And just keeping everyone tight together, hanging out together. And um, you saw other teams starting to splinter. You saw teams, you know, there's a lot of showboating in the Olympic village food hall. You know, it's this, mm-hmm. that's where people come in and look around and see who's out and about and, you know, you can see everyone sometimes coming in in their smart uniforms or blazers or whatever it is, or, and there's a bit of peacocking and all sorts and it's easy to to start to distract. And uh, so, you know, you do things where you're, you know, you're, you're the furthest table away from everyone else. And, you know, if you've not got your phones with you, you're not, you're not asking Usain Bolt for a selfie and you're just getting on with it. And, Mm -hmm. So the boy and the boys all understood that and said, like you know, after we've won, then you can you can let loose a little bit. But until then, and and also I guess one of the other things maybe, um, John Paul is that when we talked about our goal setting, you know, and you can get into having goals that if you're not if you're not careful, an outcome goal like winning this or winning that can distract. But at the same time, for us, we wanted a gold medal, so we talked about it incessantly for two years, probably. And it didn't put us under pressure. It actually kind of, if you get excited about the goal and you almost manifest it in a weird way, talk about it so much in a positive way, it takes, it kind of didn't ever feel like it was anything other than it was going to be a gold medal. And we talked about it all the time. And we never talked about, well, what if we don't make this goal? What's it going to be like when we get home? And it never, we never had that conversation. Um, you know, and it obviously could have done. It's a team sport, anything can happen. But our competence levels was really high, that it kept our confidence levels high, but our culture kept everyone in tow. No one got too big headed and no one would run away with any thoughts that they were better than they were or, you know, not doing anything other than just dealing with
1: the present. I mean, one of the things is what I think is absolutely fascinating was the fact that I think I've, I've read somewhere that you said that if you've done your job right as a coach, you can just take a step back and. You've also said that it doesn't matter who was in front of you in the final, you were going to win. The guys were that prepared. They were that focused. The purpose was so solid together. It was impossible that you were going to lose.
0: Yeah. Those two things are, are, are important. One is a leader, you know, be be a leader that's that you, you can still win when you're not there, you know, and that, that's, that's incredibly important in business as well because especially at the moment, everyone being remote, right, and having to do different things, you've not got your boss peering over your shoulder or having to lead from the front you need a you need people that are independent can work hard understand what the goal is um and so your processes have to go to that um and i think i think that's i think that's really 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 important
1: Mm, good so won the gold medal absolutely ecstatic what was the next step for you back to fiji is is god so to speak
0: yeah, it was actually it was it wasn't far off that. Um, I was actually on a, a Fiji Fijian television show this morning, and we were talking about those moments, those days uh, afterwards on the islands, because it, it has had its history of um, not being unified. You know, we've yeah. had coups, national uh, disasters. Um, it was you know it was it was run by the the, the, the British for a long time. Mm-hmm. um there's been chiefly wars all sorts of stuff and and we actually kind of the country felt unified on that moment and i think i think that was probably the greatest thing that had happened for, for us in the gold medal so we came back three days of bank holidays massive celebrations the whole country was off work basically for for the rest of the week um <laughs> which would have hit the gdp for a bit, but. Um, it, you know, it did. We did see the bounce back. There was increased tourism and stuff like that. We had, we were the most um, Google named Fiji for 30 minutes after the Olympic final. Um, and a lot of tourist trade came by going, Oh, look, that's where's this country? And then had a little look on Google. Oh, it looks nice. Yeah. Oh, there's some nice hotels. And before you know it, it did have a material effect winning a gold medal uh, on the economy. Um, and you come back and you get given various awards and all that sort of stuff. But everyone's so happy that we kind of, proven that all the players had obviously come from the islands come from the villages and they can show that, you know, you get things right and you, you trust in their ability and you put the things around them. Mm. Um, you can achieve all sorts of things. And I think that glass ceiling, a lot of us kind of feel sometimes wherever we come from and whatever we've done. And So a lot of people back on the islands, just gave them hope that, you know, it, it might not be sport, but it might be getting that qualification or going mm. to get that job overseas um that they could do now you know the, there's no reason if they work hard enough that those things can't get achieved and i think that was probably the, the vibe the kind of feeling we got back back on the islands those those following days
1: great you, you've actually got your face on legal tender and you've been given was it was it ratu the the only non-fijian chief title yeah
0: yeah i have yeah so, so they put me on the 50 cent piece on the on the on the head and now and uh i'm honest they've got a seven dollar note which is normal normal legal tender they obviously seven for sevens so yeah. i'm on on the back of that and um and yeah they made me a chief so uh my official fijian name is is ratu which means chief penny is ben in, in fijian penny rayani uh, latina and latina is the the chiefly clan in Serua where i lived in the province in fiji so yeah, yeah. um i did all the, the proper chiefly um uh the the ceremony that lasted a whole day um to to, to become a chief and uh that was crazy he was live on tv and i was chasing various people and getting my clothes ripped off and <laughs> stuff thrown over me and um it was magical actually you know yeah. and all the local villages like 50 of them had all made me loads of um mats um I had hundreds of these mats as well and it was it was amazing uh, you get whale's teeth as well that you get given as a chief and yeah um and there's a real responsibility that goes with that as well for the communities so, oh massive
1: uh, yeah so where is Fijian rugby is it in a good place at the minute is it still a long way to go
0: Yeah, no, it's in a good place. I mean, I think for for any any of the Fijian teams, they just need opportunity, you know? So for the 15s team, they need opportunity to play in big competitions, play against a big team. So that's happened in the last year or so. Um, New Zealand are playing Fiji next week. I don't think that fixture's happened. Well, New Zealand have never played Fiji in Fiji and it's been decades, if ever, that the two teams were. They have played, I think, a long time ago so they're getting to play each other this weekend or i think or the weekend after which is amazing and super rugby have also given fijian teams um a, a chance to to be in the competition and the sevens team are going to to the olympics again as one of the favorites you know they didn't they didn't win the world title but it's been such a weird season uh, with covid that it was a kind of cut down title and there's the jerry tuwai who was one of our stars from 4 years ago is captaining the team he just got named as as World Sevens Player of the Decade, um, and he's another kid that came from nowhere really. Um, so they're gonna be lighting it up in Tokyo in, in a couple of weeks.
1: Yeah, fantastic. I'll tell you what's absolutely brilliant is to see that the, the correlation between leadership in sport and leadership in business and, and everything you've said there just resonates about there needs to be consequences, don't try and get the culture right, don't overcomplicate things, trust your team, allow them to sort of sort out the rules, those, those teamship things themselves. Um, so I think it's it's absolutely massive. Um one last question, just a signature question. I think you've pretty much answered this, but what is leadership to you? It, it, to me, it is it's get helping
0: everyone become their best version, you know. And and then I would kind of say as a as as an expansion on that, then as a result of that, also then making that 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 group as as strong as possible and have as much psychological safety as possible. So leadership's not shouting and pointing fingers Mm -hmm. it's the softer skills it's getting to know people it's um, being clear on you know creating black and white so you don't have gray in your system Mm -hmm. Um, it's helping people it's being those silent guides uh, as a a leader Um, you know you want to stay in the shadows and let let those others in the light and it it, that's that for me what is what leadership is all about and it's consistent as well Mm -hmm. so when the pressure comes on it's no good being the type of leader that goes, Oh, I'm all about all of this stuff. And then suddenly, you know, you're not hitting your profit margins or you're not winning enough games. And it's like, Oh, it's back to my way. Now mm-hmm. you, you've got to be consistent. Um, and I think the communication piece is massive as a leader. You know, if you, you've got to, you got to tell people exactly what, what the journey's on and then you've got to mm-hmm. make sure that they understand and, and, and join that, join that journey.
1: Absolutely agree. So Ben, if people want to get in touch, you've got the the Ben Ryan podcast, which is coming up for a new season. So we'll yeah. we'll put the link in the comments and on the uh, on the template. Um, social media, Instagram. You yeah,
0: experience? I'm on I'm on all, all of those things at the moment. Uh, ben Ryan sevens with a with a number seven is uh, is me on Instagram and, and Benjamin Ryan. Uh, normally, only my mum calls me Benjamin, but <laughs> Ben Ryan was taken, so Benjamin Ryan on on on, on Twitter. And then I got I got my website benryan.co.uk and yeah the podcast which which is which is a lot of fun to do as you know it's good yeah. fun doing podcasts and having good chats around performance and culture
1: yeah well you learn so much and you meet some interesting people so guys That's once nice. again seven heaven get it buy it it's absolutely fantastic read inspirational story Ben just want to say thank you so much and uh, hope everybody enjoys it thanks again thank you very much.